You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. It is um, May 27, 2021. It is 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And this is uh, meditation and attachment, keep it in your practice. And uh, tonight, the, I wanted to continue talking about the path uh, to enlightenment, uh, which we started last time, but mainly focusing on the first uh, stage of the 16 stages of uh, enlightenment. Um, I'm, if you want a reference book for it, uh, the Manual of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw is, is a good reference. And what we're talking about here is uh, knowledge that discerns mental from physical um, phenomenon. Um, Sometimes I think at the beginning of this, you might wonder why that would be an important thing to do. Uh, And um, uh, the answer would be that we want to be able to see clearly what's actually happening and understand how we interpret that. So what is the data that's coming in? How do we process the data? And then what do we make that data into? It's one way to do it. Um, As we started this evening, we were talking about mentalizing, which is also a piece that I wanted to include in this. Uh, because uh, some of us had good mentalizing training or metacognition training and some of us didn't. And as you um, proceed with your practice, it's important to be able to mentalize well so that you can begin to have the the kind of insights that are necessary to lead to enlightenment. Um, So you have the five senses that you're used to, um, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And then in, in Buddhist thought, you have mind as a, an activity. You have uh, the capacity to sense, that's what this is. And then mind makes it into what you understand it to be. And how present are you for that process of taking the raw sensing experience and forming it into something? Uh, At the beginning, we're just trying to pry open a little bit uh, of the top so that you can see into this uh, can, this, uh, this uh, nature of the human experience. And it, it can go quite deep and then there's a lot of levels to it. Um, in the beginning, uh, you probably don't have the skill, the resolution to see into the more subtler levels or the more advanced practices. Uh, and so uh, I like to also talk about this as a skills training so that you develop the capacity to experience the things that you need to experience in order to make sense out of this. If you don't have a good concentration, you won't be able to do the meditation techniques well enough to begin to have these insights. And so it's important to begin to start there. We talked about that last week as the development of access concentration to be able to maintain uh, an awareness of the object long enough uh, that you have the direct experience of both the sensing of it and the knowing what that sensing experience is. So um, you might say that you have the capacity to sense, which is 
eye consciousness, then you have the capacity to know what that sensory experience is, which would be eye-mind consciousness. If you have sensing and seeing, and the same is true in hearing and then feeling the body, taste and smell. Um, if you look at the whole picture, one of the metaphors that Shinzen used to use, if you look at the monitor screen that you're looking at, is it what you're seeing? So the window of the Zoom meeting is open and there are six or seven windows on it, depending on how you've arranged it. Uh, two people are present and so you have a representation of them and four people have their, their cameras off. Uh, so you're not really sure. Two people have uh, pictures up and two people are just text. It's very hard to understand what a text person might be like uh, based on that, based on a name uh, or the picture. There's more detail in the picture. How did you make up your understanding of each of those people that you were looking at? Um, and can you discern clearly one sensation from another? That's also something that happens quite often in the beginning of practice. Uh, if you're in the body and the request is for you to tease apart emotional sensations from physical sensations or non-emotional sensations, you have clarity to be able to do that uh, or not. When you look out at the visual field that's outside with the eyes open, is that experience so dominant that you lose track of the internal visual experience? Or can you hold both an awareness of the visual experience externally and internally at the same time? One of the things that creates this perception of uh, the self uh, and the world coming in from the outside is this uh, lack of resolution of internal visual thinking when the eyes are open and you're seeing external sight space. Uh, it does also help create this impression that the world is coming in and we're experiencing what's out there. This is very different than the way that uh, Buddhist thought uh, regards it. We take in the sensing experience uh, and we process it for, Vedna uh, is the Pali word for that, uh, feeling tones is the common English translation for that. Uh, I like to talk about it as urgency. It's the processing order. You take in a sensing experience and it's evaluated for whether or not it's important or unimportant, whether, it, whether it's a response to danger or something pleasant and ordered in terms of when it um, is processed and dealt with by the whole system of the body-mind. I quote this quite a bit uh, because I, I love the, the, uh, the starkness of the numbers, but uh, a French group of neuroscientists <clears throat> uh, calculated the, the processing speed of the body-mind in its totality and came up with the number of 11 million bits per second. And then they uh, evaluated the processing speed of consciousness, so 16 bits. One six. So in each moment of consciousness, you experience 16 out of 11 million uh, pieces of information. And this begins to point to the, the nature of the experience of I am a self and uh, I am a solid self that is uh, doing things. <clears throat> uh, 
we would call that volition in uh, meditation terms, uh, the intention action. You make an intention, which is the volition, which is the mind, and then the body takes the action. So it's not even the same there. So opening this up, changing the identification from this whole self that has uh, qualities to it that you experience as uh, permanent and uh, seeing clearly what actually is happening, which is almost all experiences unconscious and uh, not knowable. Some experiences conscious. Why would that make sense to have most of the experience unconscious and some of the experience conscious? Um, I like to talk about it in terms of veto power, that you have the capacity to sense, uh, you, meet, you meet the object that can be sensed or the contact uh, with the, the sensing capacity. So you have the capacity to sense, you have the object that can be sensed. And when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. Um, sorry, I forgot to turn on the mute. Um, so if the object can be sensed, the capacity to sense it, when they meet, contact happens and a consciousness of that sensing experience uh, arises, awareness knows that. It's then uh, evaluated for processing speed. The, the brain science on processing speed is pretty good. It's uh, so initial studies that have been replicated. If it's urgent, it, it processes in about three-eighths of a second. Uh, if it's neutral, it probably doesn't get processed in the consciousness. And if it's pleasant, it takes about a half a second to enter into consciousness. The, uh, <clears throat> there's a lag in consciousness itself, which is about a half a second behind. They've studied this as well. They notice they, they apply pressure and then uh, the, uh, the person acknowledges the pressure and the interval between that is consistently about a half a second. So that conscious experience that you have of yourself in charge of everything is uh, actually half a second behind what's actually happening. You're already doing whatever it is that you're doing by the time that experience arises. This is what the human condition actually is. And so what we are asking you to do in this, these early stages of meditation is to see what is happening clearly uh, and understanding that that's how it is. Um, <clears throat> So you have the capacity to sense, which in seeing would be your retina, which is uh, sensitive to light. If there's light, you can see the light. Um, and then uh, you take in the light and then you compare that pattern of sensing to the database. And then you generate uh, an, an image uh, that maps onto that pattern of sensing experience which is based on your conditioning. So you know, the, uh, one way to talk about that might be your previous experience of experiencing things and making them into something. There's a record of that and you compare the uh, unfixated uh, present moment to that database. Uh, and then if you get close enough to uh, 
um, a match, then the, the information about that attaches to the uh, undifferentiated sensory experience and it becomes a conceptual reality, it becomes solid. If it becomes solid, that would suggest that before it becomes solid, it's just vibratory energy. Um, not the energy of the thing itself, but the energy of the capacity to sense it. Um, and so what we're really asking in this first stage is to begin to open up to the possibility that uh, the sensing experience and the object that is being sensed are not the same. And that the interpretation of the sensing experience and the object are not the same. Uh, it was actually uh, cybernetics and Gregory Mason, who was the first person I read to understand this. Uh, uh, his famous saying is along the lines of, you can sit on a chair, but you cannot sit on the idea of a chair. So you have in your mind a sense, if I say chair, you probably have a dozen or more visualizations of what a chair might be, none of which you can sit on. But if you recognize the chair and moved your body to it, you could sit on that chair so that the differentiation between the physical object and how we know the object is different. Uh, and we want to begin to pull that apart and see it clearly. One of the metaphors that Shinzen used to use is, is a tapestry. We want to pull it apart and see the individual threads, the, the color of the individual threads. And then we want to be able to zoom out and see the whole of the tapestry. Uh, I was, uh, didn't complete the metaphor I was using about the computer screen. But if you zoomed in on your computer screen, uh, you would not see a closer and closer and closer version of what you were looking at. At a certain point, you'd see uh, uh, these uh, lights, red, green, and blue. There's no white on your computer screen. There's no black on your computer screen. But the full range of colors comes from this combination of red, green, and blue uh, diodes at different levels of brightness. And then the mind takes in that light pattern and creates based on the uh, perceptual database that you have, the images that you then represent. So faces, uh, colors, all of that is made in the body-mind. And each of us makes it based on our own conditioning so that there isn't a universal version of this that exists that we all share. There is our uh, conditioning that meets in the moment the phenomena that's happening now and creates out of that interaction of the experience that we're having. I do also like to add imagination to this, which I think is important. <clears throat> One of the things that happens when we're experiencing something unique or new, uh, if we don't have entries in the database that match closely enough, then the imagination kicks in and begins to try and construct a representation of what it is that's happening. And uh, our uh, imagination can be affected by conditioning. If, for instance, you grow up in a household 
where over and over again, you long for something and attempt to get it, and over and over again, you're unable to get it. It is possible to begin to pinch off or limit the capacity to imagine something, which then uh, uh, affects your capacity later in life to uh, imagine different responses to situations that happen. Uh, I'd like to think of this as one of the effects that leads to samsara, the, the experiences that we know and the limiting of our capacity to imagine or to see all of the possibilities that open in front of us because of our previous conditioning creates this uh, pattern of choice where we over and over again pick uh, things that we know over things that we might not know and therefore be uncomfortable with. In a quantum uh, physics uh, term, um, in each moment, what opens up, <coughs> in each moment, what opens up are all of the possibilities that you could choose. And if your view is clear and expansive uh, and you can pick up all of those possibilities, then you have this uh, incredible range of things that you might choose in each moment. But uh, if the mind is restricted, if the database, the conditioning is restricted, if the imagination is restricted, then we tend to see the things that are familiar to us and all of the other possibilities are unseen. And so we pick over and over again in this habitual way, even if it isn't uh, useful to us. So opening that up, seeing that uh, is part of what this investigation knowing what the sensing experience is, knowing what we make it into, and then really tracking our intention and action, taking in the outcome, uh, and then adding that to the database so that uh, the next time uh, that kind of experience arises, we have additional information about how, how we might respond. <laughs> which is one of the ways to move into a virtuous cycle rather than uh, staying in a afflictive cycle. Mentalizing is a term or metacognition is a term where you can track uh, your experience, track your thinking experience, uh, uh, tra uh, track your reactions and monitor this. Um, in the West, uh, that early experience of the dyadic relationship with the caregiver is where you learn the basics of mentalizing. And then um, when you're four or five or six years old, uh, you develop a, a second track, which is mainly the autobiographical conditioning experience. Um, so I just wanna parse them a little bit. In the beginning, the, the experience of the infant is to express themselves authentically to no one in particular. When you're born, uh, you have a sensitivity to the voice of your birth mother and not really anyone, anyone else. You're more reactive to the sound of your uh, birth mother's voice but you're not more attached to, to her. <coughs> I know it is biologically possible 
for a man to carry a, a, a fertilized egg uh, to birth, uh, but it just doesn't happen very often. So I will forgive my defaulting to uh, the, the female uh, sex for this. Um, <clears throat> So we're all born, we're all autoregulators, we're all just entirely self-absorbed in the beginning. Our brains haven't developed to the point that we can even recognize that we are different from everything else. Um, there's a gaze there that might be useful if we could come back into that. Can you imagine? You can't, of course, it's rhetorical. Could you imagine just looking out of the world and having a completely empty database so there's nothing to know you just have the pure sensing experience and you don't make it into anything because there's nothing in the debate database to match it to. You just see that uh, open gaze of all experience. You're in the present moment. As uh, sensations arise in the body, as, as uh, discomforts arise in the body, you express them. Uh, in the beginning, it's authentic. <coughs> And then hopefully you have a sensitive enough caregiver who then uh, responds to those uh, cries. I say cry, of course, but that isn't the first thing that infants do. The first thing infants do is look cute. Uh, there's a study that shows that the first uh, attachment behavior exhibited by newborn infants is at around 42 minutes, and it's a reflexive smile. Um, if some of you have had children or have been around infants who will recognize it. Anything that really moves in front of their gaze will elicit this smile, which is very easy to interpret as meant uh, intentionally for, the, for you, the looker, but actually uh, in the beginning, it's just instinctive. And then uh, you call out to the world, you look as cute as you can, imagine, uh, what your view of the world was, would be your expectations of the world were if all you had to do is look really cute and all your needs are taken care of. Um, this is the actual experience of some people. It's a thing that leads to security. But if that doesn't happen, then uh, there's a confusion, confusing look. If you've ever been around uh, secure children, and uh, seen them make an initial request for some kind of attention or care, and then it doesn't happen right away. They, they look confused because they're used to the level of care that's very <coughs> reliable, very predictable. Um, then, this process happens where the caregiver comes if they come reliably enough, uh, the child's brain develops and their attention turns toward uh, somebody else to help take care of them. And they, they feel free to express what they want and the caregiver responds to that. And there's a loop that gets created. The infant expresses authentically what they need, the sensitive enough caregiver interprets the expression of the infant, understands what the infant might need, and then provides that for the infant. So you're hungry, you're too hot, you're too cold, you're wet, all of the different things that arise, all of the different expressions 
uh, facial and sound uh, that the infant makes that the sensitive enough caregiver interprets and understands and then responds to. If that happens in a good enough way uh, and the, the caregiver is mirroring back to the infant what those expressions mean. So um, imagine the, the infant is uh, upset and angry about something and then the caregiver mirrors back the expression of anger and says, oh, you're angry. Uh, and if that's correct, then the, the child understands that, oh, this experience I'm having is uh, reflected back at me so that I begin to understand what that is. And then I make a request for some kind of care. And then if the caregiver reliably provides that, then I know if I make that expression, then I'm likely to receive that kind of care. That's that process, that early process of developing mentalizing. So uh, when we talk about this, it, I like to do it in a structured way so it's easy to discuss. And I'm using the Peter Fonagy, Anthony Bateman system here in describing uh, that early mentalizing experience that we might have learned uh, as infants and small children from the relationship with our caregivers. First, uh, the spontaneity of just uh, the uninterrupted uh, flow of what's happening, and then the capacity to monitor. That's the first dimension of mentalizing. The second then is that um, I'm a self uh, that's distinct from other people, and other people are distinct from me, that division. Then the internal versus external. This is the internal experience I'm having, and that's the, the external place where I can take stimulus in. And then the last one is cognitive versus uh, affective or um, thinking versus feeling. In uh, Buddhist thought, the heart and the mind are not separate. Uh, and so we know thinking, but we also know feeling as, as the same dimension. Uh, it was in the West, in Western philosophy, where we cleaved reason from feeling. Uh, it's often taught that way. But when you think about it, actually, uh, and reason actually was always uh, held up as the, 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 the better of the two. One doesn't want to get too emotional and wants to be able to think clearly. Um, but when you think about it, emotion preceded uh, the cognitive mind uh, evolutionarily, and it isn't the emotions that turn off in most people when they get stressed, it's the ability to think clearly that gets turned off. That's why I think it has, there's a, a bias. And without that monitoring, that conscious monitoring of what's happening, we just take actions, and we form intentions and take <laughs> Form intentions and take actions based on our conditioning. Uh, it's very uh, common for people to say uh, to me uh, that they wanted to be a completely different parent than the parenting uh, that they had, and, and and at the same time find themselves often repeating the kind of parenting that they didn't want to repeat. And this is this uh, process of uh, 
cognitive and the uh, affective. And also one of the things that we're attempting to develop in this uh, understanding of uh, basic meditation practice. So uh, there's four dimensions of this basic meditation practice. Uh, see if I can get them. Um, so, um, concentration, sensory clarity, um, mindfulness. One of the things about my mind, which I find really uh, half the time quite annoying and half the time quite humorous, is that I remember lists minus one, and I can repeat the same list over and over again. And it's not always the same one that I miss. Energy is the last one. So energy, sensory clarity, mindfulness, which means awareness of the present moment, and uh, concentration are the basic skills of the uh, Vipassana meditation. Those need to be in concert. And then we can turn our attention to the objects that we want to explore. So in developing the sensitivity or the knowledge that mental and physical phenomena are not the same thing, we want to see clearly that you have the capacity to sense something, but that is not what you make that sensing experience. We have the capacity to discern things, that is not the sensing experience. Without the sensing experience and the discernment, we can't make conceptual reality out of ultimate reality. Uh, one of my favorite metaphors around this is uh, a drum. We have a drum. There is no drum sound in the drum. You have the stick with which you beat the drum. There is no drum sound in the stick with which you use to beat the drum. And yet when you beat the drum with the stick, the phenomena of the drum beat arises in the present moment. And if you uh, take in the sensing experience and process it consciously, you know that that is the sound of a drum beat. But without all of those pieces together, there is no permanent ongoing quality of drum beat stored either in the drum or in the stick or in your capacity to sense it. It all happens uh, in, in the experience of the present moment. Is that making sense? <clears throat> so in traditional Buddhist uh, thought, we divide that out into the skandhas or the five aggregates. And I, uh, because I'm a shin, old shin, and we like to say what old Shinzen students like to use the, the see, hear, feel technique. Um, in the way that he usually teaches see, hear, feel, we don't have the overlay of mind. So I also want you to pay attention to that when, we're, when we uh, start meditating. Mind uh, knows what things are. It's what uh, makes things into something, but it also is the thing that directs where your attention goes and collects the snapshots uh, or the mind moments that you then use to create the experience of conceptual reality. 
So um, when you're paying attention to this, uh, without interfering or in any way directing your attention towards something, simply follow as your attention moves from object to object and know this to be the, uh, one of the qualities of mind where your attention is drawn. <coughs> we do not take in everything that's happening and then create a, uh, uh, an accurate depiction of what's happening. We have a hierarchy of preferences which mind will direct us to. So we tend to pull out of the whole landscape the things that are interesting to us, and we don't tend to focus on the things that aren't interesting to us. And so we begin to create these uh, tableaus or these experiences of, of what's out there, which is not an accurate representation of what's out there, but uh, a very curated selection of what we find interesting that's out there and then creating the experience. You may notice that if you walk into an environment and there are not enough objects that have interest to you, then the, the, there's a, either a devaluing process of the environment or the suggestion that the environment is boring, uh, whatever it is that you know, uh, your conditioning uh, uh, reacts to uh, a, parcel, a parsity of the kinds of objects that you like to pay attention to. <clears throat> You create a series of snapshots. Um, I like to call them punch outs. Um, you punch out these little pieces of information from the environment, and then you assemble uh, the, the, your experience of the environment from that list. Um, selective uh, fo uh, focus is what we call it in Western psychology. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I had, a, I went to a therapist. He had an office on Bedford Street in Beverly Hills. If you live in Los Angeles, you know that Bedford Street and Beverly Hills and uh, Ventura Boulevard and Encino are the two therapy hotspots. Um, and so <clears throat> I went into his office. I sat down and I looked down and there was a rug on the floor that uh, I thought was new, and I said to him, you got a new rug, That's uh, and it's really uh, beautiful. And he said, yeah, I got the rug six months ago. You've been here 20 times since I got the rug. Now you're noticing it. The mind will over and over again create a tableau, uh, particularly if you're used to the environment that you're in that may not even be current. Um, another example was we had misplaced uh, the wrench that we were looking for. Uh, we're moving offices, so there's a, a little bit of this and that construction, and was right in the center of the floor. And two of us were standing there looking for it, and neither one could see it because we'd been in the space so many times. We were using an old image of the space. We didn't create a new image of the space that was actually a reflection of it. And then it shifted, and we came back into the present moment experience and we're actually in a representation that was more accurate. 
So depending on where you are in your practice and how much of what I'm describing to you either have already had the experience of seeing or um, uh, are on the edge of being able to see it, this is part of the exploration of that. Why that is important is because you can begin to see how you're making the experience of yourself and how you're making the experience of the world and you can begin to notice whether it's an accurate representation or not. And that begins to reveal your conditioned responses to things so that you begin to have agency in responding differently and interpreting differently the things that are happening. And if there's big distortions built into the way that you've been conditioned, you can begin to recognize those, set them aside, and then respond in the present moment with the conditions that are actually available to you and not um, uh, constantly repeating over and over again uh, the, the habit of, of seeing, the habit of experiencing. So we're going to do some meditation uh, to begin to illustrate these things. It's a basic see here feel technique, dividing the world into visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body, three broad groupings. The felt sense of the body includes taste and smell. We don't separate them because typically if you're not eating or there aren't some strong smells, um, it's not that active and so it's not worth breaking out uh, a separate uh, capacity for that. Visual experience is both internal and external, auditory experience, both external and internal, the felt sense of the body, both whatever the physical quality of the body is and also the emotional quality. And then the overlay is the investigation of mind, paying attention to where your attention goes. Does it flow? <coughs> <coughs> into a sense object, you hang out at a particular sense object with no intention to go anywhere. You notice that on the periphery, other sense objects arising. You notice a flow of your attention from uh, the current object to the next object. Is it a sudden shift, a flow? Is there a hesitancy? Uh, but <coughs> follow that process and then do you know what the sensing experience is? Most of the time, the processing of what the uh, ultimate reality experience is, the, the pure sensing data and what you make it into happens faster than half a second. So it just enters consciousness already attached, already fixated. The only reliable source of um, experiencing that um, process is if you hear a sound and you don't know what it is and then that lasts longer than half a second and then you can watch the mind trying to identify what the sensing experience is but most of the time that's already been completed by the time it enters into consciousness and so this is a kind of reverse engineering uh, your attention is drawn to an object you know what the object is and then you focus intentionally on the sensing of it the capacity to sense it. Uh, and then generate your label, see, hear, or feel. So one word. 
in Buddhist thought, uh, Vedna, which is that quality of, of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or uh, urgent, uh, doesn't matter, pleasant if there's time, uh, applies mainly to the physical sensation of the field space. Uh, auditory experience and visual experiences are neutral. There's an additional uh, concept of pressure. So the brightness of the light might be unpleasant, but uh, that's the pressure of it, not the sensing experience itself. We're not gonna track Vedna tonight, but I just thought um, that that would be helpful as you move forward. Um, any questions about the technique before we begin? All right, so go ahead and take your meditation posture. We'll begin with a few minutes of breath counting just to settle the mind and concentrate it. It's the evening and we're householders, almost all of us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, that will be helpful, hopefully. So any comments or questions about uh, the practice that we just did? Is that all pretty clear? All right, so. Uh, George? Yeah. Is that a new uh, microphone system? You, you look like a radio a disc jockey with your, <laughs> that, it sounds really good. Does it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I was yeah, getting, it sounds very good. I was getting some feedback that the quality of the sound wasn't good enough. And so this is the common solution to that. So mm -hmm. it looks dramatic, I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How, how's your book doing? Uh, we haven't heard about your book for a few months. The uh, Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect? Yeah, yeah. Um, the audio book and the paperback are going to come out in the next couple of months, so you'll hear more about it. Mm -hmm. I got some really brilliant quotes uh, for it. Uh, if you want to indulge me for a second, I can read them to you. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, this is from the curators of the, the mu museum show I had. Uh, I'll just read one. Rooted in his own remarkable gender questioning photographic work and frank personal history, George Haas's book is a monument to an unrivaled period of artistic experimentation and identity politics in New York that has continued to inspire change and fuel the cutting edge culture of cool into the 21st century. Not bad. Mm -hmm. And then Lena Dunham, uh, who is a writer as well, wrote, uh, George Haas will take you back to a New York that feels both impossibly glamorous and 
unthinkably tragic with the precision of a scalpel and the tenderness of Proust. This is a book that binds us to the places we dream of returning to but are no longer there. George is a writer of uncommon grace. So that was also quite nice. Mm -hmm. Anything about the practice? That's good. Anyone else? Thank you for coming to class. Um, what's coming up next for us here is uh, uh, our summer retreat, which is uh, next month. Uh, take a look at that. Uh, it's up on the website. Uh, there's still a few places left. I haven't checked on it in a while. Uh, then in July, we're going to start a series of um, meditation and attachment level one day longs. There's four of them uh, through July and August. And then in September, we're going to start another level two. And then in December, we'll have our uh, retreat. Uh, we haven't decided whether to do it in person or not. It'll depend on how the pandemic unfolds. But we could be actually back in person at a retreat center in the mountains. That might be nice. Um, I offer the teaching freely, um, but I do hope that you'll make a donation that helps support me and also uh, uh, the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links on the website to donate and also in the email that you may have received about the class. Uh, thank you so much for coming and we'll see you next time. Bye now. Thank you, George. Bye. Bye, Harley. Bye.